The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. No mai hoki mai kia the fold e mihinei ko Duncan Reid tokungwa. My guest this week is Daniel McLaughlin, who has been writing for the spin-off since our very early days. I think maybe even his first piece would have been in 2014. Um, I, I had been reading him for some years prior to that. Uh, his, he, he ran this blog called The Dim Post, where he would write about uh, politics both in a kind of sort of short take analytical sense, but also in a satirical way. And it was it was back in the day when you would just go and look at a collection of blogs and, and just update and see if there was something new that day, um, which I think a number of people are intensely nostalgic toward that era of the internet now. Um, but but from there, I, I'd become quite obsessed with his, his brain. And so it was a real delight when he agreed to start writing for the spinoff. And he has continued to do that um, over the years since. Often writes sort of long reviews or, or even essays as well as the occasional pieces of sort of fast take political analysis. And, uh, you know, he's, he's connected to politics. His friends there has been involved with the Green Party. But what I like most about his writing is he has just an incredibly open mind. Um, it doesn't, you know, seeks to understand why things are the way they are and and assumes, you know, tries to understand phenomena even or, or positions, even those that he doesn't himself hold, assuming good faith at at least the origins. And that's what makes his uh, his work quite just feels quite different from the current mode. And he's not for everyone um, for that reason, but I always come away with feeling like my mind's stretched. He, he's, a, you know, historically he's been a novelist and, and as you'll hear in the discussion, he still is, but he also wrote a collection of essays, um, which was published on VUP earlier this year called Tranquility and Ruin, three long essays. We discussed one of them at length, uh, which is about his engaging with the world of effective altruism. And, you know, I, I think that that is some kind of a masterpiece. Uh, and, and we discussed that at length. We also discuss uh, a recent essay he wrote for the spin-off about the concept of post-journalism, and which I'm not sure I buy, but I think is, is a useful way of understanding things. It's this idea that when we move from a model of advertiser-funded to reader or audience-funded journalism, something fundamentally changes about the motives of, of the product and therefore the product itself. Um, and finally, we talk about Simon Bridges, whose book, National Identity, Daniel was due to be part of the launch of in Wellington, and who's, uh, you know, he's interviewed more than once. And I think is, you know, I'm sort of two-thirds of the way through his book, and I find it very interesting. I find Simon Bridges a very interesting character, in, in almost the same way that 
Daniel is in some respects, and that post his uh, liberating from the national leadership, that he has become this quite unorthodox figure, um, breaks many of the rules of contemporary politics. It's not at all clear whether that has given him any dividends, uh, you know, in the sense that the people who now like him more seem to be more on the left in a place which they would never vote for him. But he certainly seems more content. So we talk about that a bit as well. This is Daniel McLaughlin on The Fold. Uh, kia ora, Daniel, and uh, welcome to a, a special lockdown edition of The Fold. Howdy, Duncan. Um, I wanted to, I mean, I've been wanting to have you you on The Fold for, for a long while. You're, uh, I hope you don't mind me telling the listeners, one of my, one of my favourite writers in the country, um, but the, what, what spurred it was a do, piece Do people of, ever complain when you say that? I hope you don't mind me telling the listeners. <laughs> some, some, like people, some people are, are, are self-conscious about right. it, you know. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I actually imagined you might be one of those people, right. but I'm, I'm glad to no. hear that <laughs> you don't mind being, uh, being publicly praised. No, you put it all out there. <laughs> so, so the reason I'm having you on is that uh, you wrote a piece for us over the weekend, which is a, a book review that kind of um, expanded into a bit of a, a, an essay or a summary of the thesis um, about the, the idea that journalism, whatever we have considered to be journalism historically, is, is dead or dying, and we're now moving into something which is uh, qualitatively different and, you know, should... should and that they were kind of putting under the umbrella of post journalism. What I, what I, one of the things I love most about your writing is that you can very lucidly uh, open up these these sort of frontiers without quite tipping your hand in terms of how, how you're responding to them. I and mean, obviously, you're interested in, that, yeah. in them enough to write three thousand words. But uh, I wondered if if you don't mind me kind of. Giving me a sense of, of how you responded to it, whether, whether you buy the thesis in whole or in part. I don't know. The thing about that book is it's very dense and it's very fascinating. And it's one of those books where I kind of felt like the fun and most interesting way to write about it was just to really kind of buy into the worldview of the author and communicate it in the review. And so, because um, I'm, I'm actually quite kind of persuadable or maybe gullible is the word. I, when I'm reading a book, I'm quite often just, yeah, completely persuaded by what the author is saying. And then it's only after I've had time to let it compost around in my mind for a little while that I start to think about it a little bit. But I mean, you know, his thesis is that we've, in the, with the, the sort of obsolescence of newspapers, the fact that they're kind of a, a dying um, technology in terms of media, that, um, that they've got about 10 years left, he estimates, before um, it's, it's just no longer profitable to own printing presses and distribute media in, in this format. And so after that, we're really totally into the transition to digital media. It's a transition we're already quite a long way through and that the economic incentives of digital media turn out to be really, really different from the economic incentives of newspaper. When you were distributing a newspaper, you wanted to, most of your revenue came from advertising. And so the incentive was to just get the newspaper out to as many people as possible. Like when I was a teenager, I had a job as a newspaper delivery boy, which is a job that no longer exists. And 
most newspaper companies actually lost money paying teenagers to deliver the news to their readers. The subscription didn't really cover that, but the advertising revenue from having such a large base of readers made up for that. It was hugely profitable. And that kind of dictated a certain type of news, of media model, and you wanted it sort of it, it incentivized the objective model of news, the kind of both sides journalism, um, and you know journalism that was impartial and objective, and that readers could really trust because you wanted as many people reading it as possible. And Mir's argument, he's this the book guy who wrote this book, he's this Russian media theorist who lectures in Canada, is that digital media, the incentives are completely different. That what most media companies have found is that. People won't really pay for the news as it existed in that kind of objective format um, because they can get it for free anywhere. What they will pay for is to become a member of a media organization that they see as kind of taking a sort of political or ideological or, or activist stance on issues that they care about. And so they'll pay to, you know, like proliferate um ideological arguments or activist causes that they care about. So that's his argument. And I think in a way, like it's obviously true once you kind of see that and just look at look at what news organizations are doing. Um, that is the model that that is successful. And so in that sense, I, I kind of accept it. I do think one thing he kind of misses a little bit is that lots of journalists, I think, still, still do just kind of want to be journalists. And they have lots of journalists, at least good journalists, have this kind of contrarian streak in them, and they don't want to be um, just doing what the economic logic of the industry dictates, and that kind of does give it always a little bit of a, a kind of backbone there. What's what's your perspective on, on this? I mean, I certainly see that those phenomena are, you know, rattling round and and you know obviously <laughs> to declare an, an enormous conflict the, yeah. the spin-off is a member-funded organization that that's out the largest part of our revenue stream as readers um paying for our work so you know the the sort of rational thing to do as the um, person running that enterprise is to listen hard to those readers what they tell you but also what they do and what that tells you and to respond to that but um, so, and that is fundamentally very different from the former model, which, as you say, was was basically almost entirely funded, or the 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 gravity of it was driven by advertisers. And we are largely talking about print media, but print media has been the the largest employer of journalists and has kind of, for the most part, set the agenda. I, I don't. I mean, I think that. That's a, um, you know, there might be some other forms of journalists who would bristle at that, but just by virtue of having more journalists than any other part, I think that has broadly been true. Uh, I guess the, the, the parts that I, the, there's two things that I struggle with um, in terms of, one is, is, as you touch on, I think there is a an attachment to, well, there is a contrarianism and a, and a you know, the, the, the journalist community is quite hard to move en masse in any particular direction. In fact, when it starts to be conscious of any kind of pressure on it, it tends to, to go elsewhere. And and I think that that, you know, any sense that there is a, I mean, you know, as someone running an editorial organization, 
you can do that through your hiring, you can do that through sub-editors and so on. Um, and that's, you know, but, but actually telling people what to write, especially in an era where opinion is more um, sort of common than, than, than maybe has been in prior areas, and you touched on that in the piece, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty difficult to do. I guess that the, the main critique I have of it is uh, a couple of years ago, I read David Halberstam's the, the Powers That Be, which is, uh, uh, have you read that? No, I've only read um, Best and the Brightest by him, which is a great yeah. book. Yeah, uh, he's, got a, he's got quite a few great books. Yeah. He wrote a, a brilliant, uh, he's written really great books on, on basketball, uh, which <laughs> is how I first got into him, the, about the 70s trailblazers and Michael Jordan and so on. But, but this book is about the, you know, it, it sort of covers the, the history of 20th century media up to, I think, the 70s and does that through these sort of long, very close studies of the LA Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post and, and Time magazine and CBS, I think. But what you what emerges from that is that, you know, th- this has always been, or certainly historically, was a, was a horrifically compromised industry. And the idea of you know, journalism has always presented itself as as objective, but I don't think at, at many points it, it has been on the, you know, in any kind of uh, a grand scale. Uh, you know, no. there are these amazing passages about Henry Luce, who was the... Um, Life magazine. Uh, Life and, and Time, the, he, yeah. he owned, owned those properties. And they had the best journalists in the world in Vietnam who would consistently file these extraordinary dispatches about the, the horrors and, and just how badly it was going wrong. And they had this very powerful editor and, and then even more powerful publisher who were just like, we don't want that story told. And so it just wouldn't make it in yeah. to print. And, you know, you know, and before that, the Chandlers who, who owned the LA Times and basically bought it so that they could override the public, you know, just just bully politicians into allowing them to build canals to get water to to build out LA and and would just routinely evict politicians from power who got in their way. So and these are two of, you know, Time and the LA Times, yes. two of the probably ten or twenty most august publications I, in the iconic. public mind. Yeah, that, yeah. Is, that is a point that he's really making in this book, is that he's not talking about like a golden age where journalism was objective and true, and now we're in the sort of, you know, like, I don't know, rust age when journalism is um, fake news and post-journalism and that it can't be trusted. He just thinks that the, the transition between the medium is so radical and it's happening before our eyes that it kind of needs a new term to to um, help us pay attention to it. Like one thing I kept thinking when I was reading the book is that you couldn't really have Me Too stories in the sort of golden age of journalism just because they're stories that, you know, make some readers really, really angry and they cancel their subscriptions. And if your business model relies on just having as many subscribers as possible so you can sell your attention to advertisers, that's just kind of a, a form of journalism. You just can't really do that. Whereas you can do that in the digital age because you're going to have um, members who get, because it is a form of activism and you're going to have members who really believe in that form of activism. And so, you know, that that's still, you can still have a credible business there. But I, I think that that's sort of, yeah. yeah, I actually think that's a really good kind of example of ways that, that journalism has been changed in, in recent years and that um, you know, but but that also I think that maybe that's a slight misreading and that 
you know, you even when you have a digital, you know, like a, a member or a subscriber model, and that's um, a large part of your income, and even the Herald, like NZME's uh, half-year performance came out today, and they're up to 27% of their revenue um, yeah. is, is subscriber-based, which is, you know, from near zero functionally yeah. a few years ago, um, which is kind of extraordinary. But that when you do that, you still have an interest in growth. So there is that balancing act of appeasing your base, people who are currently subscribed, and also wanting yeah. to broaden the tent to get yeah. more in. And you know, the, the New York Times, is, is you know, as, as Ben Smith has written, is trying to become the Netflix of journalism in some respects. And what and that you can feel the tension there in between, like the you know the the, the you know your sort of low hanging fruit subscribers are all there, and you've got to keep them happy, but also. You can't just serve them, otherwise you're sort of unpause and effectively vulnerable in terms of growth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess the other kind of interesting, just sort of continuing that Me Too thought, is that if you see the sort of stories, the sort of places that Me Too stories get written about, they tend to be media companies, universities, political parties, law firms. It's quite a specific type of place that is the intense focus of a lot of kind of membership-driven coverage that kind of like, I don't know, urban liberal elite or whatever you want to call it. And so it's still not like, uh, you know, you can still can't really say it's like objective journalism that's happening now that couldn't happen before because you're still con constrained by the things that your subscriber base is interested in. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be that it's your subscriber base being interested and it's also the kind of stories that get brought to you. You know, yeah, I think yeah. there is a large chunk of the population that is only a grazing um, consumer of news and certainly wouldn't consume, you know, in-depth investigations in any form. And while they are surrounded by, uh, you know, probably, you know, as bad if not worse examples of Me Too type phenomena, they don't naturally bring it to the attention yeah. of the journalistic community. And as the journalistic community has increasingly become a professional class as opposed to, you know, the, the sort of um, straight from school, uh, you know, go into to an apprenticeship, you know, it was almost more of a trade yeah. um, historically. I think it probably has got some distance from connections to those kind of communities at times. That's something I was thinking about while I was reading this book. My, my wife used to work for the New Zealand Press Association, which was the New Zealand wire service that got shut down, I think, about 10 years ago. And, yeah, lots of the journalists in there, like it, it was kind of predominantly white. The older journalists were almost all men. But there was a, a much larger class diversity, which I think you just don't really have at all in contemporary newsrooms, which was lots of the journalists started out as sports journalists or racing journalists on a provincial newspaper, and they, yeah, the, they didn't have degrees. And so, you, yeah, you kind of had a diversity of life experience there. Um, and, uh, yeah, sort of what do they call like perspective diversity or something, which, which I think you kind of lose once you get the professionalization of the industry. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably true on some level, but I do think that the the fact that contemporary journalism is animated by a concern to to represent uh, a greater you know diversity, particularly sort of um, an ethnic diversity of what mm. has previously been a, a largely yeah. Pakeha world, um, particularly in the mainstream media, means that it kind of has naturally 
broadened the church in 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 some respects, even as you know it might the the, the sort of style and um, paths into it might have changed. So, I mean that that's why I guess the the thing I've struggled with is that, is that uh, it implicitly says that there was a a particular era of journalism that is ending and moving into the next. And I I'm not certain that journalism hasn't always been in motion. Mm. And that uh, as we move into this new era, that the change to the economic model is not so radical a thing as to deserve mm. a new name. But undeniably, I think it, it uh, has a lot of, it, it has wrought a lot of change yeah. to how it is made and who it is for, yeah. and not always for the, for the better. I, I guess also he's predominantly talking about the US and the UK media. And we haven't kind of had a, and, you know, the subtitle of the book is um, How Trump Saved the Media or something, because his hypothesis is that Trump turned out to be just the ideal subject for post-journalism and that he was the kind of existential enemy to the class of people within society who were just most likely to become subscribers to, you know, existing media stations and existing media channels. And so we haven't really had a sort of, you know, an event of Brexit in the UK. We haven't had an event like that in New Zealand, and so it'll be interesting to see if there, are, if we do see something like that. If there's, if there's a change of government in New Zealand, and we get, you know, a, a, a national government or a national act government, that that kind of creates the the real opportunity for that post journalism model that we're talking about, and that you can kind of say, oh, well, we're, you know, our, our country is just under threat, um, and funding the media is the only way you can kind of defend yourself against that threat. So, yeah, if if we see, I guess we'll be able to demonstrate whether or not his hypothesis is correct if we have something like that, which creates that business opportunity. I think that that's, uh, that's why New Zealand is, is such an intriguing outlier in the, a global media sense, particularly in the, the sort of Anglosphere or the English-speaking mm. world, um, in that we... We don't really, and this is going to kind of irk some listeners potentially, but we don't really have a right-wing media here. Um, we, we have, obviously, ZB and, and Mike Hosking, who's like a mm. one-man army in, in many respects. But the, you know, we have a very moderate media se- uh, sort of sector by global standards. And, and I think one of the, the big things, I mean, you look at the UK, Australia, and the US, that took three of the the countries to which we have the strongest ties mm. and kind of consume the most media from, all of them have big, big um, Murdoch presences. And the Murdoch media is actually one area of them all which has probably the most top-down editorial control, mm. um, which is why it's so shocking when something like the you know, Arizona being called for uh, for Biden, you know, first by Fox, when there are kind of jarring breaks from that. But, you know, Murdoch hasn't been here for 15 years, and both in terms of the proprietors, the editors, you know, people complain about the Herald, and I think there are things you can complain about with, with all of our organizations, yeah. spin-off included, but the, the we don't really have a highly partisan media, and therefore, you know, which I think is both reflective of and informs our political culture and and the relationship between politics and media mm. and sometimes you kind of see twitter attempting to almost replicate the um posture of uh, you know 
overseas um, sort of left-right tribal dynamics without really the material? Is that, is that something that you sort of, uh, you know, notice yeah, yourself? I think so. There's a, I mean, that replicating, especially US politics in New Zealand, is something that I kind of think is an underrated problem in New Zealand politics. And the, the same goes for the UK, less so Australia, in that the UK and America are politically very unhappy, dysfunctional countries. And it seems like quite misguided to kind of look at them. And But because they're so culturally dominant, I guess it's kind of a natural thing to do and say, well, let's just kind of like live out all of, all of the things that are happening in these, you know, like, states that almost seem to be disintegrating. Let's just do all that in New Zealand, even though there's no real kind of, you know, native local argument for any of these things going on. So when people are, um, you know, like reproducing the kind of anti-lockdown protests and anti-mask protests um, using all the, you know, rhetoric of the of the US right or when people on the left are um, protesting like the appointment of conservatives to the Supreme Court in the US. It seems, yeah, I'm, I'm just try, trying to struggle the word to it. Something strange about kind of, yeah, recreating their politics here for no other reason than we're kind of seeing it happening on social media and we're just sort of acting it out almost um, almost compulsively. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I guess there is a a sense that, you know, for us to, I mean, that that's one of the the things about the sort of social media, digital media era is that you have instant access to the the best or the, the, the most of what's being created and discussed anywhere in the world at all times. There's the, you know, we tend to group around uh, following specific things. And honestly, the, the quality from both the UX, the, the writing, you know, the the just how fascinating the sort of psychodramas are. Like, why wouldn't you um, follow these things? I mean, you've written, I think, persuasively about why we shouldn't, but I get the feeling that you probably still do follow US politics quite closely, just as I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you know, like, is it useful for us, you know, for particularly our political media classes to, to understand our politics through a similar framing mechanism? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've read the um, everyone, everyone, no one was talking about this, the Patricia Lockwood book, which is basically about Twitter and about how addictive it is. But one of the things she really points out and makes fun of in the book is how homogenizing it is. You know, everybody ends up making the same, the exact same jokes and saying the exact same things. Well, kind of also, you know, the title of the book is no one else is talking about this. And often people will will just be all saying the same thing while saying, why isn't anyone talking about this? And it's this kind of, yeah, bizarre, underrated phenomenon of the way that especially the, the media and intellectual class get homogenized by being addicted to digital media. Yeah, I... I uh... I think it, it's a phenomena that, that feels very much that it has arisen in recent years. I, I tend mm-hmm. to, for the same reasons that I think that journalism has a natural resistance to going too far in any particular direction because of that contrarian streak, I just yeah. hope that most of these things will work themselves out <laughs> over time yeah. because it just yeah. gets really boring. Yeah. Uh, one thing, just, just to switch tack slightly, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was because I feel like you have that streak in you as well, perhaps faster or more pronounced potentially, but that this idea that whenever there is a dominant way 
of understanding a particular view or part of society that you tend to, rather than go along with that view, you tend to kind of want to scrutinize what it's built on, go back to the origins. And I think the apotheosis of that was your um, your essay that we published under the title Communism by Stealth in 2017, uh, w- which was basically about the origins of conservatism and, and how it interlocked with progressivism in the, the 20th century and, and then how neoliberalism or, or the, the kind of belief, the veneration and the power of the market kind of fused with a, a flaw in, in conservatism. It's a, a really stunning piece of writing, which I encourage our listeners to read if they haven't already. But what what it what I really admired about it was um, that it basically like we sit in, you know, broadly speaking in these camps. Uh, I don't think we make too many super good faith efforts to understand why we are where we are and often it basically is as much as anything traceable to our our parenting Um, but you kind of wanted to look into that and the more you looked the more you saw there was useful things in in both origin stories and and kind of deep abiding flaws where did that essay come from and and just tell me about the thesis of it a bit more so it came from it just came from kind of reading a few books and um thinking about the contents really i think there are about five books that i kind of that i reference in there and one is uh moneyball which is the michael lewis book which is them figuring out how to do statistical analysis on baseball another is a really great science fiction novel called rent plenty by francis buford in which he looks at the soviet union in the 50s and 60s when stalin is gone and they're kind of industrializing and communism really seems to be working it seems to be doing everything that it was supposed to do on the box and then it just kind of collapses and so he has this really deep dive into what went wrong with the soviet economy um and it's about um a a james scott book called seeing like a state which i mean james scott describes himself as an anarchist but it's the best most persuasive argument for the kind of original concept of neoliberalism that i've read the idea that um the, the the belief in the wisdom of crowds essentially and also just sort of in in local knowledge that people know best about their own local lives um and can make decisions for themselves instead of having their decisions made by kind of the state or rational planners so i, I kind of read those books and had been thinking about them for a while and i just sort of yeah wrote that um and the pretext was that i guess um that they had to, it had to be sort of vaguely topical in some way, and the pretext was that we were going into the election and national were talking about their social investment idea, but that actually stopped talking about it by the time I'd written the essay and gotten it published because they decided it was too complicated to communicate in an election environment, and so um, yeah, it, it kind of looks at the way that. Um, there are these sort of deep problems with with organizing complex economies, and those are what one of the things that drives us into dividing into being left-wing or being right-wing or believing in the power of the state or the power of the market is that we're kind of trying to solve these very, very deep um, problems with how to organize complex societies. And reading it, because I read through it again this morning because you said you wanted to talk about it, I kind of, the, the one thing I'd modify that is that I think a lot of our politics actually kind of comes from our temperaments. Like I think conservative people are um, 
disposed towards being conservative. I think they sort of have a, like a kind of a fear of change and um, they're comforted by the familiar. And I think people who are really left-wing or really progressive are just more have kind of a, a, a positive emotional reaction to the idea of change or the idea of new ideas. And um, I think those sort of like psychological drives um, determine a lot more of our politics than often people who are, you know, political scientists think that they do. I tend to agree. And and I wonder how much of that is, you know, this is, you can get very basic on this. Like, you know, there, the cliche is that you are a progressive when you're younger and conservative when you're older. And some of that is, you know, having more to lose, sort of more more life experience, having a nostalgic attachment to the world that you grew up in, which is, changing around you but but I also wonder if on some level it's like a, a biological imperative and that if you have like a roughly uh, you know a, some kind of rough balance between those two competitive forces you know, which is often what I felt like while New Zealand is, is necessarily imperfect the, the default caveat where I would take our hand over almost any other countries is because we have over the last 30 years or so sort of inched back and forth rather than having these wild jags and I think it's largely served us better than you know the the um, counterfactual of, of what's happened in, a, in other countries yeah mm. there definitely feels like there's something that that is yeah is, is kind of innate in that I agree I, I started writing a piece about this earlier this year but it just kind of got abandoned because there's so much else going on but it was about how this idea of seeing politics and political beliefs as more of an ecosystem and you have the, the left often trying to change things. The left isn't always trying to change things like in terms of like the environment, the left is actually quite conservative and the right is quite radical, I think. And it kind of reminds us that these groups are often quite arbitrary and contingent. Um, but in any way, so this idea that, yeah, well, what you just said, it is good to have a balance between them. And I started writing it because there were a couple of scandals about this kind of 20th century progressive icons. One was Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood in the US and really drove this idea that, that um, women should have access to reproductive medicine and that it should be free for um, low-income women. And so for a long time, she was seen as one of the most um, you know, inspiring and admired progressive activists in the 20th century. But they, they took her name off the Sanger building in New York recently because um, Sanger was an advocate for, um, for eugenics, the idea that you should also have like a you know, a medical intervention in the population to kind of stop the wrong sort of people from from having children because they were and this was and this was an actually an idea that was incredibly widespread among the left during the early twentieth century and the Guardian endorsed eugenics and all these other really important left wing thinkers endorsed eugenics and. Um, at the time, it was conservatives that were kind of opposing this and saying, no, you're kind of inter interfering in God's plan and that kind of thing. And so, like, my point in all this is that the left often has quite terrible ideas and they kind of tend to get not only just forgotten, but reviled when the ideas turn out, do, you know, do get revealed to be terrible. So there is like real value in having conservatives around saying, hey, no, your your plan to make society a, real, a better place actually sounds really terrible and could have all these horrible unintended consequences. And so we're going to push back against it. And yeah, that, so yeah, I think it's healthy to see it as a kind of ecosystem in which you have people coming up with ideas, and some of them are good, and some of them are bad. And the the way we find that out is that you have conservatives pushing back against it, and you have centrists kind of like trying to figure out which of them um, 
might fly and which of them won't. Does that does that sound like a a, a plausible political ideology to you? Yeah, not not like a deeply unpopular one, but yeah. one that um, <laughs> certainly seems, seems plausible to me. It's it's vaguely related in some respects, at least in terms of the you know broadly nestling under the it's more complicated than you think uh, umbrella than to to the the central essay to Tranquility and Ruin, which is your book that came out earlier this year, which again I urge our listeners to to buy. Uh, it's, a, it's a collection of three essays. The one I want to talk about is on the effective altruists, which you you know you go went along to a to a camp to kind of chew on with with them in person while also introducing some of the the debates and the you know the progression of the idea. Do you want to just Tell me about the uh, effective altruists and how you got drawn to them to the extent that you would make them essentially the centerpiece of, of that uh, that book. Yeah, so the effective altruists are kind of like um, like activist nerds is one term I used to describe them. I don't know how comfortable they'd be with that. But uh, they... The idea traces back to an argument that Peter Singer made in this, uh, who's a moral philosopher in this very famous essay about um, you come across a child in the road and they're drowning and do you save the child even though you're on your clothes? And everybody says yes, but Singer's argument is actually you don't because we live in a world in which it's reasonably easy to make donations to charities operating in the third world um, who are literally saving children from dying of malaria or um you know, intestinal parasites or other easily preventable diseases. And so, but most people in the West just choose not to donate to those charities. And so Singer's argument is that we should kind of radically consider um, what is and isn't moral in the world that we live in today, in which we have these massive and egalitarian um, conditions. And so the effective altruists are a group of people that really go down the rabbit hole and trying to figure out how to live more moral lives based on the the premises of Singer's argument that um, you're kind of like, if you're a person born into a wealthy um, country, especially if you're sort of born into um, the middle class, the upper middle class, and you could potentially be earning quite a lot of money, you have this obligation to be helping people or reducing suffering in the world. And so I, I really got drawn to the idea because I, I don't know, I'd been involved with the Green Party for a couple of years. And one of the things that kind of frustrated me about that was that it often seemed like there was no discussion about what, like, what is the data that we're operating on here? And, you know, what's the evidence for what we're doing? And um, what are the outcomes that were, was often just a conversation that never happened? And you could never really ask those questions, it felt like. And so the effective altruists were kind of like started from there. How do we know that we're actually accomplishing anything is like the the very first like yeah question that they ask so that was incredibly attractive to me the fold is brought to you by o media making brands unmissable and public spaces better across aotearoa with over 4,000 out of home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centers i'm super grateful to o media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with kiwis raising capital or taking your business to the world Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. 
like I said earlier, you're, you have this ability to both in a very fascinated and, and way explain the motives or, or what, what drives um, or, or a different way of thinking about these various kind of issues and policies and so on um, without ever quite tipping your hat. I mean, yeah. you know, like, whereas this one, the, the level of fascination felt like, you, you know, you were almost becoming it to, without ever explicitly saying that by the end to me. Yeah. So what, so they do, if you're an effective altruist, you are meant to give at least 10% of your income to effective charities. And I, I don't give that much, um, but I do donate to, um, you know, I, I do donate to the effective charities. I'm, I'm just really persuaded by that part of the argument. Lots of the other stuff, because a big part of their kind of ideology is that you sort of have to follow the logic where it goes. And so even if it sounds a bit strange and that's tied into this idea that often ideas that st sound strange at first can be really transformational because nobody else is kind of doing it. Nobody else has thought of it. And so they're quite committed to, yeah, listening to odd and unusual ideas because that might be what the next really, really big thing is. And so you end up like one of their ideas is about wild animal suffering that, um, there is just a lot of suffering in the natural world. Um, like most of the animals that are kind of born into it end up dying by being eaten by another animal. And so the amount of suffering that's going on in that, just in the environment is, is vast and maybe humans should be doing something about that. Sounds like a very, very unlikely weird idea to me, but the effective altruists, just because of the kind of principles the organization is founded on, sort of have to accept that that is something that they should be thinking about more. So, yeah, that's so I'm attracted by the idea that they are interested in logic and reason and data, but also, you know, a, a lot of it just is quite, quite weird and quite unlikely. But that's it, it's fun to be hearing new and weird, unlikely ideas instead of, you know, the kind of sort of environment where, like the, in the Patricia Lockwood book, where everyone is just saying the same things over and over again and kind of pretending that it's radical and new and different when it's just intensely conformist and boring. Yeah, I, I totally agree. One of the arguments that um, that I really, I thought was fascinating and kind of struck me is in that realm of like a an, an idea that's bizarre on the face of it, but, but actually has a lot, you know, the more you look, the more you sort of buy it. Is this this X risk yes. idea, um, which strikes me as kind of analogous to climate change, in, in some respects, in that it, you know when it first was started to be discussed, it was remote, it was not particularly well understood. Um, it sort of seemed fantastical in a way. The idea is that the idea that human activity could uh, influence the weather and. You know, we're, you know, we're talking about in the seventies, eighties here, and and now it's, you know, we're we're living in that climate. Uh, X risk is this idea. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. That, you know, the advances in uh, AI and machine learning and um, and so on will raise the, the real possibility that that sometime in the future we we could be <laughs> destroyed by. The, the the advanced machines and the machine learning that we're creating and therefore we should start to think about how we obstruct or, or counterbalance that now. 
Yeah, so this is something, it's something that's controversial within effective altruism. So the idea of X-risk, existential risk, is that if you value human life, then you kind of have to ask questions like, well, where where are the most human lives? And one of the answers that is philosophically credible is, well, they're mostly in the future, like, you know, possibly that um, our species could have many, many trillions of lives in the future. And so we should put a value on them. And that means that um, anything that kind of threatens those lives really should should be taken extremely seriously. Like, you know, if you're sort of balancing lives, which is more important, the 7 billion lives today or the trillions of lives in the future, or, and, you know, sometimes the, the number 64 quadrillion gets thrown around. Well, obviously, it's the ones in the future. So we should be doing everything to kind of protect the existence of those lives. Um, and so, you know, like, Nuclear war is obviously a potential X risk. Um, The planet getting hit by a meteor is a potential X risk. But the ones that lots of effective altruists end up getting interested in is, um, yeah, is strong AI. So, um, you know, like greater than human intelligence or or human intelligence at scale um, could could potentially be something that um, wipes out the wipes out the species. Almost accidentally, like there's there's one thing, there's the saying that they have in that community, which is that the AI, you know, if it when it exists, if it gets built, doesn't hate you, but it also doesn't love you. You just are made of atoms that it might want to use for something else. And so I think that communicates the way that the AI's um, interests and alignments won't be sort of like the the existence of human lives will have no kind of positive value for it. It won't hate us. It won't have any feelings for it, us, but it might just want to exterminate us because that's a, like a peripheral goal on the, on the way to doing something that it might want to do. And so that's, that's an X risk that some of the effective altruists think is, is really important and should be the organization's top priority, but other effective altruists say, well, no, that's weird. And we don't really kind of buy into that logic. And we're far more interested in animal suffering and global poverty. Global poverty is still the thing that the organization is most interested in. I think that the, the, that's kind of why it's such a compelling subject in that the arguments can be both visceral and very heady at the same time, but they all do seem to come from a a very well-motivated and intentioned place. Just to move on a bit, um, I became familiar with your work through reading The Dim Post, which was a a blog that you had in the sort of early to mid-2010s, maybe before. Certainly that's when I became aware of it. It was very short form in contrast to the sort of epic essays um, that, that you that you commonly publish now the at the time I think if, if you know in terms of your creative output your written output you were, would typically be described as as a novelist as a satirist and, and a satirist and you don't seem to write novels anymore and, and only very seldom satire so what happened um, I don't know I, I kind of write satire every now and then and it just doesn't seem that funny to me and so um, 
and we're, you know, when I occasionally go back and look at that old stuff, some of it is, uh, you know, it's kind of funny and is just of a quality that I can't really recreate anymore. So I, I just can't write that stuff anymore. So I, I write other stuff. Um, the novels, I would still very much like to be writing novels, but it is it, like it's the most time consuming form of writing I've found. You just, I just have to redraft and redraft and redraft. And it takes years and years and years to produce a novel that I'm kind of happy with. So, um, yeah, I've, I've got some really good ideas for novels that I want to write. And it's just a matter of trying to find the time to write them. So, yeah, that's that's the shift, I think. But also, I think a lot of the interesting writing at the moment is nonfiction um, essays. A lot of the best books that I've read over the last 10 years have been essayistic or nonfiction, you know, like book-length journalism. I kind of want to put in a pitch for the idea of the book and that it's a form of media that is really upfront in terms of the transaction, like you're paying some money for the book, and then once you've paid it, you've like the author is not trying to scam you in any way anymore. You've kind of, you know, completed the transaction with them. Whereas with, you know, like lots of digital media, there's, there's often kind of an agenda going on where your attention is being monetized to a tech platform or something else. So it's kind of seems free, but it isn't. Whereas the, the book is just a fairly honest transaction. Um, No, I, I, I buy that one person who has, has recently taken the time to write a book uh, is Simon Bridges, uh, who has written uh, a book called National Identity, which is not underlined a, a political memoir, and it's a very funny cover, which features him with his chin resting on a fist. Yeah. Um, he's he's a character that I think we both find more interesting, and who's become some so subsequent to his rolling uh, as leader a bit over a year ago. I think probably of more texture and more interest than he maybe had while he was in his, what you might call his political prime. Yeah. And, you know, you, you were, you've interviewed him for politics and powers, which I want to talk about in a second, but you were also going to be part of the, the launch of his book, which is an odd thing for someone, you know, cause he is the very definition of a conservative. And I think that's what, what he discusses in the book. But, and you're a person who was involved in the Green Party um, until relatively recently. What, what's what's the attraction there? Um, I don't know. Like, he's just... Like, lots of people that came to that politics and pubs event that we did in Wellington, I think, in 2020. Um, you know, they were the kind of people... It, it was organised by um, Verb Wellington, which is kind of a literary events organisation. And most of the people were... The people that would go along to a literary event in Wellington, they're, you know, they're very left-wing. And almost everybody walked out liking Simon Bridges. And what's interesting about that is that he really didn't try to pander to the crowd at all. He doesn't try to pretend that he's not a conservative politician. And so... Uh, yeah, it's just kind of a fascinating phenomenon in that, um, like, I don't think any of them would be voting for him, and I, like, probably wouldn't vote national if Simon was leaving it. But, yeah, there is just something that he kind of can, he, he you know, he has an interesting background, an interesting perspective. He's quite funny, um, and he, when, when he's trying to seem authentic, he seems very interesting, I think, and connects with people in a way that he didn't when he was playing a sort of generic conservative politician. I mean, what what do you say there about playing a a conservative politician? I think that the reveal of his 
sort of true character has been far more interesting than the one that he held as leader is, is part of is a big part of what's made him compelling you know and, and I thought his candor you know at, at that politics and pubs event where he talked mm-hmm. about for example like just how incredibly important it is to get on the six o'clock news yeah and you basically have to just oppose in the strongest possible language whatever the government says it's doing that day and that's just your sort of your lot um, I think for a lot of people even you know those who are sort of hyper engaged with the process like us to sort of really think about what is involved in being the uh, you know the leader of the opposition um, that that you know that was kind of revelatory and and I think that he's continued that on into international identity where he talks about you know the the sort of struggle with being uh, a Maori man and and a conservative you know like and, and the the sort of the fact that he feels re- rejected by both those kind of potential identity um, groups in in some respects and and he does goes on to basically do a lot of things which you know as, as he directly alludes to should preclude him from any kind of high office uh, certainly within the national party doesn't particularly like rugby doesn't really know how to fish and so on and uh, have, you know have you read the book what, what did you you know and and what is your take on how it fits into the generally bad genre that is New Zealand political memoir or, or uh, writing. Um, yeah, I've read it. It is pretty good. Um, and yeah, it's it's so, like surprisingly candid and it's it'll be fascinating to see um, like whether, like he's had pretty good media, um, be fascinating to see whether he shows up in the preferred Prime Minister polling um, on the back of it. Like, I, and I genuinely don't know whether that will happen or not, um, be, because it is so unorthodox. And like, just to give listeners an example, he's he he reveals the side of himself and that he likes carrying out pranks. And one of his pranks is that he takes photos of his wife when she's asleep to prove that she sleeps with her mouth open, and includes a photo of his wife asleep in the book. So. Like that's just quite strange. It's not it, that doesn't seem like he's you know playing ten dimensional chess there um, in a way to maximise his political career. That's that's just genuinely quite an unusual thing for a politician to disclose. And so yeah, I, I don't know how that book will will play out in terms of his political career. I mean, I think he's definitely if they're in government and you know the the foreseeable future, he'd have to be one of their. Um, top cabinet ministers just because there's such a dearth of talent in that caucus at the moment that they they would have to give him kind of a top slot in the corporation. Um, but what does it mean in terms of his leadership? I don't know. And I, I kind of suspect that he doesn't really know either, that he was so constrained for such a long time and was playing a part for such a long time that he's just, dec- and that didn't really work out for him, that he's just decided to kind of be who he really is and see where that takes his career. You can't, I mean, it might be that you know, more politicians than we give them credit for actually are the sort of very trained and constrained animals that they present as. But but the, you know, <laughs> the, the Simon Bridges that comes through the pages of the book, the sort of neurotic, um, sort of both very driven, but also kind of riven with sort of self-doubt or, or kind of a, a very an intense consciousness that his 
identity or his reality was very different from the archetype that he was supposed to be. You know, it's it is quite attractive in in both a New Zealand and a, yeah. and a more narrow political sense. All right. Well, uh, I think that's that's basically all, all um, we've got. But um, thank you so much for for coming on the fold, Daniel. Oh, thank you. I love your writing, and um, you know, strongly encourage our listeners to to seek it out and and to buy Tranquility and Ruin. It's it's a pretty extraordinary work. Good lockdown book, I think. Agree. It's. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of lockdown in it. Uh, okay. Well, thanks, Duncan. Thank you. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye. Cheers. That was the fold, brought to you by our partners at O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O Media for sponsoring this episode of the fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.